Salvete omnes, welcome to the AP Latin Podcast. The goal of this podcast will be to cover the lines from Caesar's De Bello Gallico and Virgil's Aeneid that are found on the AP Latin curriculum. Each two-part episode will cover a selection of lines from Caesar and Virgil. I will present the Latin and English of the text, providing relevant clarification, background, and cultural information that will help put the readings in their proper context. I encourage you to read along with me as you listen to the Latin and to use the English as a way to check your understanding rather than relying on the English for understanding. Each episode will conclude with some essential questions to consider as you process through the meaning of the text. Parati, eamos. AP Latin Podcast, Episode 15a, De Bello Gallico, Book 5, Chapters 35 and 36. In this episode, you will learn that a true Roman can get shot in the face and still refuse to surrender, and that Ambiorix is definitely still trustworthy. Quo praecepto ab eis diligentissime observato, cum quipiam cohors ex orbe excesserat, atque impetum fecerat, hostes velocissime refugiebant. Interim, eam partem nudari necessa erat, et ab latere aperto tela recipi. Rursus, cum in eam locum unde erant egressi reverti coaperant. Et ab eis qui cesserant, et ab eis qui proximi steterant, circum winniebantur. Sin autem locum tenere velent, nec virtuti locus relinquebatur, neque abtanta multitudine coiecta tela conferti vitare poterant. Tamen tot incomodis conflictati, multis vulneribus aceptis resistebant et magna parte diei consumpta, cum a prima luce ad horam octavam pugnaretur. Nihil quod ipsis eset indignum comitebant. Tum tito balventio, qui superiore anno primum pilum duxerat, viro forti et magnae auctoritatis, utrumque femur tragula traecitur. Quintus Lucianus eestem ordinis, fortissime pugnans, dum circumvento filio subvenit interficitur. Lucius cata legatus, omnes cohortes ordinesque ad hortans in adversum os funda vulneratur. Nis rebus permotus Quintus Titurius, cum procul ambiorigem suos cohortantem conspexisset, interpretem suum neum Pompeum ad eum mitit rogatum ut sibi militibusque parcat. Ille appellatus respondit, si velit secum colloqui licera, sperare a multitudine impetrari posse, quad ad militum salutum pertineat. Ipsi vero nihil nocitum iri, Inque eam rem se suam fidem interponera. Ile cum cata salcio communicat, si videatur, pugna ut excedant et cum ambiorige una coloquantur, sperare ab eo de sua ac militum salute impetrari posse. Cata se ad armatum hostem iturum negat atque in eo perservarat. After this command had been very diligently obeyed by them, when any cohort had gone out from the circle and had made an attack, the enemy very swiftly fled back. Meanwhile, it was necessary for that part to be exposed and weapons to be received from the exposed flank. Again, when they had begun to return into that place from which they had gone out, they were surrounded both by those who had retreated and by those who had stood nearby. But if, however, they wanted to hold their place, neither was a place left for Virtus, nor crowded together were they able to avoid the weapons thrown from such a large multitude. 
Nevertheless, afflicted by so many disadvantages with many wounds received, they were resisting, and after a large part of the day had been consumed, although it was fought from first light to the eighth hour, they were engaging in nothing that would be unworthy of themselves. Then for Titus Balventius, who in the previous year had led the Primus Pilus, a brave man and of great authority, each thigh is pierced with a spear. Quintus Lucanius, of the same rank, fighting very bravely, while he comes to the aid of his surrounded son, is killed. Lucius Cotta, the legatus, encouraging all the cohorts and ranks, is wounded directly in the mouth by a slingshot. Very disturbed by these things, Quintus Titurius, when at a distance he had caught sight of Ambiorix encouraging his men, sends his interpreter Gnaeus Pompeius to ask that he spare himself and his soldiers. He, having been appealed to, responds, if he should wish to converse with him that it is allowed, that he hopes that the request which pertains to the safety of the soldiers will be able to be obtained from the multitude, that no harm will come to him, and that in this matter he places his own faithfulness. He, when he consults with the wounded Cotta, if it should seem right that they withdraw from the fight and together converse with Ambiorix, that he hopes from him to be able to obtain the request concerning his own and his soldiers' safety. Cotta refuses that he will go to an armed enemy, and he persists in this. Where we last left the battle, Ambiorix had issued a command for his soldiers to withdraw whenever the Romans advanced and to attack while they were returning to their standards. This tactical adjustment immediately gave the Romans trouble as they were now being flanked whenever they would attempt an attack on the Gallic lines or surrounded and packed together when they stayed in their circle. But although things are going badly for the Roman military, Caesar continues to take care to highlight the bravery of the common soldier throughout his description of the battle. To such an extent that, even though he stated last episode that they were deserted by fortune and by their commander, and even though he had just mentioned that they were leaving their positions frantically trying to grab their stuff from the baggage train, Caesar now states that they did nothing unworthy of themselves. And despite the circular formation they were forced into in order to defend themselves, and despite Ambiorix's adjustment and tactics, they were able to sustain the battle from dawn until the eighth hour. The way the Romans counted their daytime hours started from sunrise, roughly around 6 a.m., where the first hour would be 7 a.m., the second 8 a.m., and so on, placing the eighth hour at around 2 p.m. In this battle description, as in the preceding sections of this book, Caesar has shifted his writing style. Where before we have seen Caesar move from the detached commentarious writing to include elements of biography and more recently, formal rhetoric and historical narratives of battles, Caesar's depiction of individual acts of heroism and deaths in this section is closer to what you might see in epic poetry. Homer's Iliad gives us many examples of an epic depiction of a battle. In one, Achilles is raging through the Trojan forces on the battlefield. Book 20, lines 472 to 484 from the Loeb Classical Library translation. With his spear, Achilles came up to Mulius and struck him on the ear, and clean through the other ear past the spear point of bronze. Then he struck Agenor's son Echiclus square on the head with his hilted sword, and all the blade grew warm with his blood, and down over his eyes came dark death and resistless fate. Then at the point where the sinews of the elbow join, there he pierced Deucalion through the arm with a spear point of bronze, and he awaited his coming with arm weighed down, looking upon death before him. But Achilles, striking him with the sword on his neck, hurled afar his head and with it his helmet, and the marrow spurted out from the spine, and the corpse lay stretched on the ground. Since the Homeric epics essentially held the status of sacred scripture to the Greco-Roman world, a normal part of any Roman's education would involve memorizing large sections of the Iliad and the Odyssey by heart. And while Caesar's Gallic battle is not quite as vivid as the Homeric depiction, 
Some of this epic flavor seems to be present in Caesar's telling. And, given his education, it is not unreasonable to suggest that some of the cadence and tone and style of the Homeric epics may have bled through into Caesar's written battle descriptions, whether intentionally or unconsciously, especially when he expands his style and plays with genre a bit as he has done in this book. Caesar's narrative presents us with a problem, though, because if you look at the epic battle scenes in the Iliad and later in the Aeneid, they depict heroes in their Aristea, their moment of heroic glory killing their enemies. But Caesar is describing Roman soldiers being killed by Gauls in this style. If he is intending to describe these battles with an epic flavor, he has inverted the formula so that the Gauls are performing the actions reserved for epic heroes, and the Romans, although fighting bravely themselves, are still the ones dying and not the ones in Aristea. Caesar mentions three specific people as being wounded or killed in his quasi-epic list, Valventius, Lucanius, and Cotta himself. Cotta is shot full-on in the face by a slingshot while he is in the middle of the fighting, highlighting his bravery and reminding us what Caesar mentioned last time about his role as a commander and as a soldier in the battle. Recall from episode 12 that centurions commanded the centuries that made up the cohorts of the legion, and that in Caesar's army the best centurions were promoted up the ranks to become primi ordines. The primus pilus was the senior centurion of the legion and commander of the first cohort, so he would be the highest-ranking centurion. The other two men mentioned by name as being wounded or killed in the battle had held that rank. Because of what he is seeing during the battle, Sabinus decides that his best course of action to protect himself and his men is to arrange to talk terms of surrender with Ambiorix, and so he sends his interpreter to meet with Ambiorix. The Gnaeus Pompeius, who serves as Sabinus's interpreter, is not related biologically to the famous Gnaeus Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great, member of the Triumvirate and future opponent of Caesar. Instead, this is one Gnaeus Pompeius Trogus, from a Gallo-Roman family out of the Roman province, whose father had obtained Roman citizenship by serving under Pompey Magnus, and had adopted the Pompey family name in honor of their patron. So Trogus meets with Ambiorix, and Ambiorix's response to Sabinus is supremely arrogant. Ambiorix grants permission to come into his presence, clearly indicating who is in charge and reinforcing that Sabinus is totally at his mercy. To a Roman audience, this tone of absolute dominance over a Roman would have been intolerable, and Sabinus's submissive request to spare him and his men would have been antithetical to Roman ideals. Ambiorix also mentions his hope that the multitude will agree to the request, as though he actually doesn't have a say in the matter, and recalling his justification for attacking the Roman camp in the first place. And then he swears that Sabinus will come to no harm. And since Ambiorix has proven time and again that he keeps his word and honors his oaths, Sabinus believes him. And at this point, everyone in the audience would be yelling at the TV screen. One thing of note by way of grammatical forms... Inside of Ambiorix's response, you encounter Nocitum Iri, an example of the very rare future passive infinitive form. I rendered it in my English reading as, no harm will come to him, in an attempt to preserve the use of Eo Ira to create the form. Sabinus asks Kata to come with him to talk with Ambiorix, and Kata flat out refuses. And in this final statement, we see yet again another contrast between the two men. Where Kata is in the middle of the fighting and gets wounded, Sabinus is standing at a distance. Where Kata doesn't care about his own physical safety, Sabinus is begging for Ambiorix to spare him. Oh, and his men too. Where Kata, wounded in the face and knowing they are going to lose, stands as an exemplar of Roman virtus and refuses to meet with an armed enemy, Kata trusts Ambiorix's pledge of good faith and goes to converse with him. And we'll see how that turns out for him in the next episode.
As we close out the episode, here are some essential questions to consider. How does the discipline of Ambiorix's forces compare with the discipline of the Roman soldiers? How does Caesar highlight the actions of individual soldiers during the battle? How do Virgil's descriptions of individuals in battle compare to Caesar's? How are they similar and how are they different? How do the attitudes of Sabinus and Cotta differ towards Ambiorix? Which of the two men would we expect Caesar to agree with? At the end of this section, Sabinus hopes to negotiate with Ambiorix and takes him at his word, even after their attack of the camp and his breaking of his oath of safe passage. What judgment are we supposed to make about Sabinus' abilities as a leader from his decision? Gratias ago pro auscultando, valete.